very important, very long, very difficult, uh, very profound, and very mysterious initial tale to the uh, Canterbury Tales, the uh, Knight's Tale. Let me remind you of a couple of things I've said about it, even though this still won't have the full meaning that it will later in the, in the course. It is of very great interest that Chaucer, at the beginning of both, in both of his greatest undertakings, the two big poems that we're reading, the, the uh, Canterbury Tales and the Troilus, turns to Boccaccio, the most famous man of letters of the 14th century, and a great predecessor in what I think Chaucer, along with Dante and several other great poets, thought of as their real mission, which was to translate, in quotation marks, in that medieval sense, to translate the classical tradition into contemporary medium. Of course, the contemporary medium is a 14th century medium, and therefore it is one that is characterized by a, an aristocratic uh, Christian culture. Both the Knight's Tale and the Troilus are translations of a kind of works by Boccaccio, and both of those works are remaking uh, one of these uh, ancient matters. The Troilus uh, is a translation of the Philostrato, which of course is dealing with the materials from the Trojan War. What we're reading here is, as you know from the handout and what was on the board last time, a translation of a work called the Teseda, that is the epic poem about Theseus. And the little point I tried to make about that is that uh, you move from a Latin epic called the Tobiad, which would be an epic poem about the city of Thebes, and you focus that in a kind of uh, uh, medieval way on a particular chivalric hero that is Theseus. <clears throat> and if you're Chaucer, you make him be an exemplar of chivalry, that is to say of knighthood, so that his tale is in some ways appropriate for the knight who is its uh, narrator. Now, if you're a very close reader of this tale, and it's hard to be, it's a, it's a long tale, uh, it's hard to pick some of this stuff up on the, on the first time, but every now and then a student notices that at certain moments in this poem, there seems to be a shifting or wavering of the narrative persona. Who is it who's telling the tale? Well, obviously it's supposed to be the knight, but at one point he says, you know, if I were you know, to go into this more, I would write at greater length. You notice that verb write? Well, that sort of, sort of jump off the page at you. That is the equivalent of computer junk in Chaucer's text. And it's one of many, if not smoking guns, at least kind of vaguely smoldering pistols that show me that uh, this text had an anterior existence. That is to say, uh, he wrote it separately from the project of the Canterbury Tales and then tries to fit it in uh, with this larger scheme that he has. There are two or three other really quite startling examples of this in the Canterbury Tales. In the Merchant's Tale, which is one that we don't have time to, uh, to read, 
The narrator is obviously a merchant. That's why it's the merchant's tale. Uh, but he inveighs against, at one point, these fools that been secular, where secular is a technical term, meaning somebody who is out in the world over opposed to somebody who is ordained and in the priesthood. Clear indication that the original voice that lay behind that poem was uh, somebody who was in the church. And he has rearranged that for some reason that we may not be uh, absolutely uh, aware of. <clears throat> it's important to remember at all times that the uh, Canterbury Tale is a radically unfinished work. <clears throat> but that is not the same thing as saying that it is so incomplete that we don't have some very good guidelines as to how to look at it. I'm going to suggest in particular that you pay close attention to what your editor calls the fragments. Look in the table of contents. You'll see that the tales are distributed among fragments. This is the way they showed up in the manuscript. That is, we have manuscripts that have a knight's tale, that's followed by a Norse tale, that's followed by a Reeves tale. That's a fragment. And, you know, and we know that Chaucer meant those things to go together and look at them and, and draw conclusions from them. We know that this is the beginning of the poem, and we certainly know that what we have at the end of the poem, the Mansible's tale, followed by the Parson's tale, followed by the retraction, that is the way Chaucer intended to finish But all that stuff in between, we're somewhat uncertain about, except for its fragments. <clears throat> now, we're heading into one of the really great fragments uh, for uh, uh, next week, and that is the fragment that has the wife of Bath, the Sumner, and the friar, a very extended uh, body of text in which you can see the way that Chaucer plays in an almost fugal manner with themes that he carefully introduces and then uh, elaborates uh, and uh, so on. So we have to be a little tentative when we try to talk about what Chaucer's uh, first, first idea is here, but Boccaccio is obviously very, very uh, important. <clears throat> now there's another text, and this one you have read, and Chaucer makes this his original contribution to uh, the Egyptian gold aspect of the Knight's Tale. And that is the prominent introduction of themes and indeed language from the consolation of philosophy of Boethius. Remember when the two lovers are fighting, and uh, you know, uh, one of them says to the other, I remember we had a, a uh, riot back here in 1969 or 70 uh, on the steps of Nassau Hall, and some well-meaning dean came along and said, oh, now, now, let's all be reasonable. Let us reason together. And some students said, in a very reasonable point of view, Say, man, don't you know you can't reason with a mob? I thought that was a very good answer. And this is what happens at the beginning of the Knight's Tale, if you notice. Uh, one, one of them says, you know, uh, be ruled by law. So don't you know you can't give a lover a law? Who can give a lover any law? Well, I showed you on the handout that that, he said, haven't you heard the old clerk's saw? That old clerk, the old wise guy who wrote that, was, of course, Boethius, and it's in that most pregnant poem, the uh, Orpheus uh, meter, when Orpheus 
is unable not to look back at the beauty of the woman. He looks back, they both are doomed to hell forever. And Boethius says, who can give a lover any law? You get another quotation when it says, you know, we're like a drunk man. We know we have a house, but we don't know where that house is. That is also a direct quotation out of the Consolation of Philosophy of Boethius. <clears throat> Plus, you then get all the stuff about fate, fortune, destiny, concepts that were raised in Boethius, maybe in a somewhat uh, muddled way in your mind, but from Boethius's point of view, he kind of resolved these perennial philosophical, uh, philosophical problems. There are hints of that in the Boccaccio text, but uh, it's much more, much more, more marked in Chaucer. Now, I have to say a word about Boethius and romance. That is to say, texts that are about love, because that certainly is what tonight's tale is about uh, in a very uh, big way. <clears throat> you will remember that in the Consolation of Philosophy, early on, Lady Philosophy explains to Boethius, gives him a whole list of false goods that people pursue as though they were of terminal value. They are power, money, fame, reputation, all these rather abstract things. Now, she does throw in, almost as an afterthought, the single word, pleasure. Uh, all right. Now, in the 13th century, a couple of enterprising French poets who wrote the Roman de la Rose had the bright idea of writing a romance in which a lover would pursue, as though it were a terminal good, uh, the, uh, the pleasures of sex, uh, the pleasures of uh, romance. This is the Roland de la Rose, the romance of the Rose uh, that I'm uh, talking about. And European literature was never the same again. If you think about the great monuments of medieval and Renaissance poetry, almost all of them are about a conflicted lover who is standing between two poles, his great desire for uh, usually an unobtainable object, and uh, some sort of restraining, reasonable uh, principle that is holding him back. The most famous of these is the canzonary or songbook of Petrarch. And in fact, we use the word Petrarchan to describe all those sonnet sequences, such as those by Shakespeare and Spencer and so on, in which this is dramatized. Now this is really important because in classical literature, eroticism was only comic. Uh, that is, you will only find it in dirty plays and in the lower form of poetry, which is to say, elegy of the kind that, uh, that uh, Ovid wrote. Virgil, it is true, made a step in the direction of uh, what authorizing, uh, giving greater dignity to erotic subject matter in the fourth book of the Aeneid, where you have the story of Dido and Aeneas. But the narrative and moral point of that is that Aeneas has to get over this trivial love affair with a mere woman. Uh, and leave her behind. He does, and she commits suicide, but he has man stuff to do. He's going on to found the Roman Empire, and that's kind of the, uh, that is kind of the uh, tone uh, of it. Now, the Knight's Tale, 
first in its adaptation by Boccaccio, and then as it's, uh, as it's ratcheted up even more uh, by uh, uh, Chaucer, gives a wonderful indication of the way that this process of what I'm calling romance is augmented. <clears throat> the ancient story of Thebes, I've already told you the uh, basis of it. It's the tragedy of King Oedipus. Oedipus, who blindly, first metaphorically, then literally, uh, engages in this horrible incest unknown uh, to himself, from which there springs uh, a progeny that is going to be nothing but disaster. Two sons, Polynices and Eteocles, and the situation is that the old king, in leaving his kingdom, leaves a will that says, one year, one of you will be king, the next year, the next of you will be king. Now, you know how long such an arrangement will work, namely one year, right? And that warfare that they get into is the great conflict that is in the Kabayad. Two kinsmen, brothers, fighting violently over who's going to be king of Thebes. Now, that's good Boethian stuff in a way if you see that what men lust after is political power. The genius move that, Boe that Bo Boccaccio made was this. He took his Palamon and Arsida are obviously versions of these two brothers, and in fact they become blood brothers, but what they're exercised about is not the kingdom, but rather a woman, Emily. In, uh, in Boccaccio, Emilia is an interesting character. You know, she has a bit of a personality. In Chaucer, if she didn't have an Adam's apple, she wouldn't have a personality at all. I mean, she is simply there to be lusted after uh, in, you know, slightly different ways by different characters, uh, Palamon and Arsida in a certain way, Theseus in another way, trying to uh, arrange her and uh, sort her out. Now, Boccaccio was the kind of, <clears throat> Boccaccio was the kind of medieval poet I like. That is to say, the kind who wrote little notes to his own poems telling us what thought they meant. So that when I say some of this far out stuff and all my colleagues say, oh, where did Fleming come up with that? My answer in this case is in the notes that Boccaccio wrote uh, to his own uh, Teseda. And I've printed out a couple of them here. Who are these strange characters, Palamon and Orsido? For an understanding of this, writes Boccaccio, it should be remarked that in every man, there are two principal appetites. One of these is called the concupiscible appetite, whereby man desires and rejoices to have the things which, according to his judgment, whether it be rational or not, or corrupt, are delightful or pleasing. That's the concupiscible appetite. I want to have it. I want to get it. And certainly, uh, sex is the chief emblem, uh, emblem of that. The irascible appetite, the irascible appetite is found very readily in men of much blood because blood of its nature is hot. And what the irascible appetite is, is the warring appetite, right? Okay, now you have two characters, one of whom is a votary of Mars, the god of war, one of whom 
is a votary of Venus, the god of love. This, especially since we're getting, you know, the notes of the author itself, uh, seems to me a fairly obvious psychological or moral uh, allegory that we can work with. Now, what about love as it operates in the poem? Uh, love is a very violent passion. You probably notice that. You walk over to this window, and I counsel you not to do it, but you walk over the window and you look down there by the uh, uh, sundial, and if, you know, switch of wenches is out there, you're likely to get it right through the eyeball down into the heart. Now, in describing the fervor of love, he says, uh, since one cannot escape uh, very serious wounds from him, notice that love is a person, uh, not a thing, anyone who speaks of him says that he is armed with arrows. Uh, others wish to signify by these arrows his sudden and penetrating entry. These two aspects can well be taken for the swift flight and the puncture of the arrow. And I'll leave you to read the rest of it. But there's a pretty thoroughgoing psychological rendering of the operation of Cupid in his bow. I've already told you, you know, Hallmark Cards has an awful lot to answer for. And one of the things they've ruined is Cupid. This little Cupid with his bow mouth and so forth, and you know, a nice little guy good for going around, shooting you daintily through the breast with an arrow that couldn't possibly hurt you. That's the invention of Hallmark Cards. Where does Cupid first appear in the literature that these people would know anything about? Right at the very beginning of the great anthology of myth, as it was known in the classical times and the Middle Ages, and I refer, of course, to the Metamorphoses of Ovid. One of the things very clearly that we have to come to terms with in this poem is the concept of mythography, that is to say, the artistic manipulation of myth for intellectual and moral means. The Metamorphoses, we've seen a good example in the Book of the Duchess. My point about the Metamorphosis as used in the book of the Duchess, remember, was there is no metamorphosis. In Ovid, Saix and Alcyone turn into birds and they get to fly around and so on. And what uh, Chaucer seems to be pushing our faces into uh, in the book of the Duchess is a very stark contrast between what he takes as the actual reality of pagan death and the hope of resurrection uh, in, in Christian. Uh, times. Anyway, what is the very first of the metamorphoses in the very first book of, uh, of, of Ovid's Metamorphoses? After the god had created the world, there was all this kind of oozy mud stuff left over, and it, it eventually, in a kind of Darwinian way, gave, for, gave birth to life forms. And a huge, monstrous uh, snake came out of this mud, and his name was Python. Now fortunately, there was a god around, and this god was the god Apollo. He plays a huge role in Chaucer, so get in your mind some concept of Apollo. What does Apollo do? Apollo is the god of poetry, among other things. He is the sun god, and he is the god of medicine. 
He's also a great archer, bow and arrow guy. And he shot the python and killed the python. That was a great thing to do for mankind. He saved mankind from the uh, python. This is where the Pythian games come from in ancient literature. The memorial of this great epic feat of the god Apollo. But he didn't let well enough alone. He then started hopping around, like so many characters in Chaucer and other points, say, I killed the python, I killed the python, look at me, I killed the Vigmano Hansen. And there was this little kid, the Hallmark card kid. He's down, he's about this high. And he has a tiny little bow and arrow, and he's wandering around. And uh, Apollo says to him, hey, kid, don't you know that, this is the tone of it, I'm not making Hey, kid, don't you know that bows and arrows are for big guys like me? Because I killed the python. I <laughs> killed the python. Now, do not screw around with Cupid. I'm telling you. The analogy that I want you to think of whenever you run into Cupid in medieval literature is not Hallmark cards, but the Monty Python rabbit. Because that is exactly... <laughs> this is exactly what that kind of... Okay, now in his quiver... In his quiver, he has two kinds of arrows, golden arrows and leaden arrows. The golden arrows are fantastic aphrodisiac arrows. You get shot with one of those, and you've got hot pants in high places immediately. The leaden arrow is an anaphrodisiac arrow. That is, you get shot with this, you have no interest in this at all, you've got the world's greatest headache, you, you, all, 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 this, all this kind of thing. So uh, there he pulls out one of the golden arrows and he shoots Apollo, who you know, kind of looks around to see the first thing he sees, and since this is Ovid, there's a gorgeous nymph standing right there, and her name is Daphne. Uh, he then takes one of his leaden arrows and he shoots her with th this arrow. Okay. Now, this is the story of country and Western music. Uh, okay. <laughs> Apollo begins to chase after her in mad pursuit. She flees. God, the last thing I want to do is have anything to do with uh, Apollo. This is the great god, Apollo, the sun. Look how he is behaving, behaving in a way that reminds me of Palamon and Arsida, and is meant to remind you of that. Anyway, since this is Ovid, it also turns out that Daphne has a father who is a river, uh, the Peneus River, and she gets over to the, the river and she says, Father, I'm about to be ravished, I think is the classical word for this. Do something to save me. And so the river god turned his daughter into a tree. You've seen this a hundred times in Western art, probably the most famous emblem of Baroque art, the woman becoming a tree. Now what tree does she become? Not just any you know, old tree. The laurel tree. Absolutely. The reason that these poet guys go around wearing laurel leaves in their hair, the way why they are laureates, <laughs> Nobel or otherwise, uh, is a kind of this association between Apollo, poetry, and this tree. But he says something, you know, uh, he says something that all the classicists, classicists think is very profound and that I think is kind of funny. I, you know, I, I think it's very funny. He puts his arms around her and he feels what should have been soft female flesh turning into hard bark. And her hair 
is turning into twigs and nothing. And you know, I think this is not exactly what he had in mind. And he says, "Well, since you can't be my girlfriend, will you at least be my tree?" <laughs> I, I, okay. Now that is the very first of the Metamorphoses of Ovid, and that gives us, in my opinion, an index of the kind of passionate love that we have uh, in this poem. I'm not trying to turn the whole thing into a comedy. It isn't. It's very serious. It's serious from the social point of view. It's serious from the philosophical point of view. But certainly that opening book has these comic moments that I think we're supposed to recognize just as we would recognize them uh, in Ovid. Now, remember what Lady Philosophy said to Boethius when she first met him. She diagnosed him as having lost knowledge of himself, of what he was. That is to say that he could not tell difference between himself and a beast. Now I'm sure you must have noticed this theme is almost drummed into the ground uh, in, the, uh, in, the, uh, in the knight's uh, tale. Uh, in the first place, uh, early, still in uh, book one, on, on page uh, 43, when they're groaning about uh, how terrible their condition is, one of them says, gee, I wish I were an animal. Because when an animal dies, you know, you just throw the body into the ditch and you don't have to worry about anything more. The bestialization of Palamon and Arsida then becomes incremental. I won't point out all the passages, but there are about ten of them, I've actually counted them, in which especially in their fighting, they are described as fighting like bulls, like bears, like lions, like tigers, and uh, so on. And I think that this is, well, it indicates their bellicosity and their ferociousness on the one hand, but on the other hand, it is this Boethian hint that there's something wrong with them. Well, there's everything wrong with them since they are respectively the concupiscible and the irascible passions uh, put uh, put in, uh, in, uh, in 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 human uh, in human form. Well, let's pick it up at uh, part book two on page uh, uh, page forty three. The first thing we learn about Arsida, who has been freed to go back to Thebes, is that he is suffering from a genuine malady, and it is love. Sickness. This is the lover's malady of Herios that I wrote up on the board last time, and you find it at line 1375. It says, not only did he suffer leak the lover's malady of Herios, but rather leak mania, mania, engendered of humor melancholic before him in his cell fantastic. A hard passage but one you can understand with the help of the wonderful picture I gave you on the last handout, where people think of the human physiognomy as being composed of three ventricles, the first one being the aesthetic or the sensory, that is the thing that sees uh, things, and his has been blown out. I mean, he's had a short circuit in his brain function on account of Switchawentia uh, out there 75 yards uh, out in the uh, out in the field. From Chaucer's point of view, I think also from the point of view of his audience, uh, all this playing with the classical tradition 
is also very enjoyable. Almost immediately, you get the god Mercury uh, coming to say, you got to get up and do something. Now, of course, this is an echo of the famous moment in the Aeneid when the god Mercury appears to Aeneas and says, you've got to quit all this hanky-panky in the cave with Dido and get on with founding the Roman Empire. Of course, what the god is saying this time is, you've got to go back and do some heavy-duty hanky-panky. So there's this kind of irony that we, at, at first, are probably uh, not, uh, uh, not uh, able to uh, able, able, able to understand uh, in, entirely. Notice how similar to the Black Knight in the Book of the Duchess both our characters are in their deep moroseness and in their melancholy and so on. You actually get the word melancholy used of, uh, used of uh, Arsida. Remember also that the name of one of Ovid's books was the Remedia Amoris. The meaning of that is medicines for love, and the whole conceit of the title and the whole conceit of the book is that uh, love is a real sickness uh, or an illness uh, that you have uh, to do uh, something about. Well, there are a lot of deus gay ex machina that happen in this. Uh, they're supposed to be in prison forever. Uh, Theseus's friend arrives and says, oh, let one of them out. He immediately lets him out. Um, a few hundred lives later, it just says that the other one snuck out of prison with the help of a, of a drunk guard. So that prison didn't work uh, all that well. But remember, it's an allegorical uh, it's an allegorical prison. And then they meet each other very much, again, the same way that the narrator and the Black Knight meet each other. That is, one overhears the other one singing uh, a very uh, gloomy, uh, a, a very gloomy uh, song, and they decide that they're going to have to uh, engage in battle. At, by page 48, that battle is being described in terms of animal content. The Duke, Theseus, who just happens, by good uh, coincidence, to be out hunting in the area, comes upon them fighting in the following way. And when this duke was coming to the landa under the sun, he looketh and anon, he was ware of Arcite and Palamon. They fought in Brema wildly, as it were boras two. The brick the sweared is went in toe and fro, so hideous that the lace does stroke, it same it as it would a fell an oak. A least stroke of their swords is so ferocious that you think it would have been able to knock down uh, an oak tree. And what are they fighting over? They're fighting because of their competition for Emilia, who uh, presumably uh, is in inaccessible, unavailable to either one. Now you have a little device that I want you to remember when we get to the wife of Bath's tale, which we're going to do uh, very, very soon. Theseus is mad. He's really angry. After all, he sent one of them away, he sent one of them away and they were supposed to be perpetually in prison. He finds them fighting. He's going to execute them. They're going to be dead. But there is an intervention now from the feminine and romantic side of the plot at the top of 49, column 1. The queen 
Anon, for very womanhaid, gan for to wape, and so did Emilia, and all the ladies in the compania. All the women start weeping on account of what he calls womanhaid. Now, this is not sociological gender politics. It's part of this sort of allegorical man-woman, Theban, uh, Athenian, Lady, Boe Lady philosophy, Boethius, all, all this kind of stuff. But the sentimental side makes its appeal to uh, it makes its appeal to Theseus, and he agrees. For pity reigneth soon in gentle hearta. It says he agrees that they will resolve this in another way. Now, I think it's a rather complicated way. I certainly do. Uh, why don't they, he doesn't just let them fight it out in the ditch where they are, and then one of them will uh, be, be alive and he can execute him. Uh, if you but instead, what we get is this extraordinarily elaborate tableau of chivalry, I would have to say. Remember what chivalry is? One of the things that chivalry is, is an attempt to impose order on what is basically violently uh, disordered. I mean, think about the Geneva Convention for just a moment. We're all in favor of the Geneva Convention. You don't want people violating the Geneva Convention. But don't you think the Geneva Convention is crazy in a certain sense? How to conduct brutal, murderous warfare in the correct manner? This is what chivalry was, you know, to a very large extent. Now, it's obviously better if you have some kind of a system like this than if you have just total anarchy. Uh, but that paradox, uh, that paradox is there. So he's set up a very elaborate uh, contest where uh, Alamon and all his knights, going to be thousands of people involved in this, uh, Arsida and all his knights, and they're going to go to the Superdome, some huge theater, uh, amphitheater, where there's a vast crowd watching. And when he describes it, remember they're making so much noise that the uh, the herald has to get up and say, shh, so you can hear the announcements and so on, turns this into a large uh, theatrical uh, event. And this, this seems to be the ordering principle uh, that, we, uh, that we have uh, here. The third uh, part of the poem, the pars tertia, is I think Chaucer would have thought it was one of his most brilliant and beautiful passages in the whole Canterbury tale. It is essentially a series of ekphrases. Uh, ekphrasis is the technical term, as you probably know, for the literary treatment of an object of visual art. When Aeneas arrives in Carthage, he sees in bas-relief up on the wall of the palace that, that uh, Dido is building, scenes and images that tell the story of the Trojan War. Or there's the famous image of the shield of Achilles in Homer, a shield that is beautifully decorated in a way that has a very complex narrative that goes with it. Well, here you have the iconographic description of the three temples. And they are the temple of Mars, at which uh, Arsida is going to uh, pray, the temple of Venus, 
where Palamon will go, and the temple of uh, Diana, to which Emily will go. Emily doesn't want to marry either of these people, at least not now. Later on, uh, she gets a little more interested. Uh, uh, but right now, she doesn't want to be married at all. So she wants to go to the goddess of chastity, who is Diana, and make her a prayer at her temple. Now, I don't think I'm twisting the text when I say this. See if you don't agree with me. I believe that part of the deal in the night tale is that all three people get what they pray for. Uh, the hard one to work into this scheme is probably Emilia. But look what it is that uh, uh, Arsida uh, prays for. He prays for victory. Of course, he thinks that victory means that he will also get the girl. It turns out differently, but he certainly gets victory. Palamon prays for the girl directly. And so although he's the loser in the combat, he gets what he prayed for. What uh, Emily prayed for at first is that she be not married at all. But the goddess speaks to her right at that very moment and says, look, it's all already been written in the book in heaven that you are going to marry one of these two people. At which point she says, okay, well, that's what I'm going to do. And uh, she accedes to it. So it is a beautiful, tidy uh, symmetry uh, of the three temples and the three uh, approaches to them. But the technique here is purely iconographic. That is to say, uh, it depends upon symbolic uh, imagery. Look at the Temple of Venus on page 51. First in the Temple of Venus, mayst thou say, and he uses the word see because you are now not reading, but you're actually looking at this visual uh, work. And what do you see? You see, rocked on the wall, full pitus to behold, uh, the broken slapers and the seekers called uh, the sacred tears and the wamenting. Now, how do you see a sleepless night carved in the wall? Or how do you see sighing? It doesn't really make any sense visually, but he is so into the idea of ekphrasis that he has to, for classical reasons, translate this experience into the visual. Now, there are a number of visual images uh, that you will see uh, that uh, uh, the uh, cuckoo sitting, uh, you say there's a cuckoo uh, that is traditionally associated uh, with uh, Venus. This is the same cuckoo that goes with cuckolds and so on. And there are a few others. But the image as a whole is an iconographic one. Then you get Mars as the next image, and you have some very beautiful lines with regard to Mars on page 52. There saw he first the dark imagining of felony and all the compassing of cruel ear, red as any glade. Wrath is red like a burning ember. This is very typical medieval moral religious iconography or imagery. The smiler with a knife. The guy who's standing there looking like he's your friend while under his cloak he's holding the knife that is going to stab you. So you get all these, um, these rather uh, marvelous uh, uh, images. You get a bit of the story of Daphne that I just told you when you get to the Temple of Diana on page 53, uh, where Emilia goes, now to the Temple of Dion the Chast is shortly for to tell you all uh, in Haas to tell you all the description, the painted bin, the wall is open dune of hunting and 
of Shamfat, chastity. She, Diana, is the goddess of the hunt. And this brings me to another tip. The second tip that I have to offer to young Chaucerians in English 307. The first tip was, anybody remember what the first tip was? Stringed instruments, good. Wind instruments, bad. Well, just as there are two kinds of instruments, there are two kinds of hunts. There's the soft hunt, and there is the hard hunt. The soft hunt is a hunt for animals that are called fugaces. That is, animals that run away when you go to hunt them, like deer and squirrel and rabbits, like what Professor Robertson used to call little furry critters. And any time you're chasing after a little furry critter, I think you know what you're chasing after. And that's certainly what you're doing in the Middle Ages. It is a sign of uh, the hunt of Venus. What is the hard hunt? The hard hunt is to chase audaces. Fugax means having a tendency to run away. Audax means audacious or bold. The animal that will fight back, a lion, a tiger, a boar, a bull, something like that. Now the great story of Venus and Adonis that is turned into a wonderful moral allegory by Shakespeare himself in a, in a long poem is built around this image. Venus, you know who she is, the hot goddess, and she spots down on earth a very handsome piece of male flesh named Adonis, okay? And so she goes down and <laughs> chats him up and all that kind of thing, and what are you? I'm a hunter. Well, she says, I don't mind if you hunt, but just be careful that you only hunt for fugakes, because I would hate to see you get hurt by chasing after an audax, but he's a virile sort of Virgilian man, and so he goes out and he fights with a boar, and you know what happens? He gets wounded in the thigh. You know what that means? It means the same thing it does in the Hebrew Scriptures. All this stuff about thighs in the Hebrew Scriptures is uh, euphemism for the genitals. It's a spiritual castration that takes place because he isn't following the advice of Venus. This system may seem crazy to you, but it is so coherent and so beautiful, you can see why medieval artists adopt it uh, so, uh, so much. So that's the te uh, temple of, uh, of chastity. Well, notice how <laughs> uh, Chaucer really gives a bum rap, it seems to me, to uh, pagan religion. He does it in this poem, and he does it also in the Troilus. It's quite clear to me that he's making pagan religion a subject. What is the purpose of religion? The purpose of religion is to bring gods and men into contact. Right? So the question he's asking is, how can you trust the truthfulness of the communication between the human and the divine world? A lot of ancient literature, especially as represented in epics like uh, Virgil and Statius, had to do with augury and with oracles and so on. And as you probably know, the most famous of all the oracles was the Delphic Oracle. The most famous of all Delphic Oracles was the Pyrrhic Oracle. And these oracles were tricksters. They were clowns. They were the kind of people who short-cheated you and gave you hot feet and stuff like this. Because when Pyrrhus goes to the oracle and says, who's going to win? The answer comes back, there will be a great victory. 
Well, there's a great victory, all right, but it's for the other guy. You know? Now, of course, this business of oracles, it takes two to tango. You may have noticed that. Uh, but it takes two to operate an oracle, too. That is, you have to have a cupidinous desire to have your best hope uh, revealed to you. Now, notice how Chaucer, uh, in Latin and Greek, you could do this with cunning grammatical construction. You can't do it in English. So what is it when, when Mars go, when, when Arsita goes to the Temple of Mars, all you hear is one word that comes out of the uh, statue. Victory! But still, you know what that is supposed to mean. It's supposed to mean that he is going to get the victory. Well, he ends up, as we know, uh, dead. Because these gods are joker gods, I'm afraid. Uh, they, that's, what, that's what Dante called them. When he, met, uh, when he met Virgil, Virgil said, I live under Julius. I was born under Julius. Nel tempo de dei falsi e bugiardi, in the time of the false and joker gods. You know, the, uh, the lying uh, god. Well, Theseus does absolutely everything he can to make this uh, a safe battle. He says, okay, we're not going to have a mortal battle. It's going to be like touch football, uh, basically. Uh, you're going to take away the sharp weapons from you and all that kind of thing. And you have to capture your opponent and drag him to this stake. And then, you know, once that's happened, you're out. Even so, you know, it's terribly uh, violent and... and uh, um, you know, b bloody and uh, so on, but eventually Arsida wins. And then on page 61, you have this, all of a sudden, you go into what is very obviously a kind of Boethian uh, uh, analysis of the situation. Theseus has done his very best, it seems to me, to impose order on what is disordered. But he lives in a world that is controlled by these gods who are so capricious and so on, Remember, you know, Venus says, you know, listen, I don't want uh, Arsa to win. I want my man to win, Palamon. She says this to who? To whom? To her father. Who's her father? Her father is Saturn. Do you remember how Venus got born? Quite embarrassing. Uh, that is to say, Saturn's son, Jupiter, took a big knife and cut off his father's sexual organs, threw them into the Mediterranean Sea where they boiled around for a while, and up comes Venus. Now, this is not a very prepossessing origin for human love and human, human passion. But anyway, she goes to her father and says, you know, do something to stop this. She says, don't worry, this is going to take care of itself. So you get Arsida having won the contest and now acting a little bit like the god Apollo, I'm afraid, riding on his horse, I won the contest, I won the contest. And remember poor old Orpheus? Yeah. He couldn't keep from looking back at the woman. This is exactly what happens to poor old Orsida. He looks up, there way up at the top of the arena is Emilia. And all of a sudden now she's kind of interested. You know, well, he looks pretty good in his uh, night uh, outfit. And, and Saturn sends a little sprite to spook the horse. The horse throws him on his head and he falls down. And he dies, and he dies miserably, and at very great length, uh, notice, uh, on page uh, 60, uh, 62. And he dies uh, in what I think is some of the most uh, extraordinary language that you're ever going to find in, in Chaucer. Swelleth the breast of Arsita, and the sore increaseth as a hair to more and more. The clottered blood 
for any leche craft corrupteth. And in his book, he laughed that neither vain blood nor ventusing nor drink of herbs. You can't bleed him. You can't give him medicine. There's nothing you can do that can make him well. Some scholars have shown that his actual symptoms here are the symptoms that medieval doctors thought were the symptoms of this uh, lover's malady of Herios. But look at this line. Can, do you think Chaucer can be totally serious without a little bit of tongue in cheek when he writes these lines? Him gaineth neither for to get his leaf, vomit upward, and a downward laxative. I don't think you can use the words vomit and laxative in the same line without sort of kind of drawing some sort of very remarkable attention to the situation. And that uh, is, of course, uh, what he did. But the death of Arsida, which incidentally, in his original source, in Boccaccio, becomes the moment for a great religious apotheosis. When he dies in Boccaccio, Arsida is taken up into the high heavens, and he looks down at this pathetic little world that he left behind and says, huh, it's not worth anything. The place that you're going to find this is not here in this poem, from which it has been excised, but it is the final scene in the Troilus. He takes this little bit of the Philostrato, uh, this little bit of the Tiseta, and puts it into his, what is his translation of the Philostrato, and we'll tr try to figure out uh, uh, what that is about when we get there. Now, a very good topic to discuss in your precepts, it seems to me, if, uh, if this should be appropriate or come up, uh, is how satisfactory, after all, is this great attempt of Theseus to order things out? And how well does he understand his Boethius from the speech that you get at the end of this poem? It's true that it ends like Paradise Lost, all passion spent, one of them's dead, the other two do get married, and they're probably in a very different frame of mind. It's kind of like the uh, Black Knight in that case. He had two different approaches to, uh, to uh, Duchess Blanche. But I think that one of Chaucer's themes here is the imperfect, the shadowy, the sort of preliminary nature of pagan religion and philosophy in the dim way that it sees truth. We see as through a glass darkly. I think this is one of the things that he's dealing with. But in the meantime, you've got this terrific story about uh, knights, about romance, fantastic, wonderful descriptions, every kind of classical rhetorical trope that anybody could ask for uh, is uh, uh, deployed uh, in the poem. And we think at least, we think until we get to the Miller's Tale, that we're off to a very good start.